This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 9, Does God Exist? Part 3. This might seem a strange topic since we've long since moved on past the demonstrations for God's existence, but I put this part 3 here because it has to deal with scripture. There's an argument for God's existence based on fulfilled prophecies. Now, is this argument circular? using scripture to prove God's existence? Well, it might seem that way, but no. Because we are relying on the prediction of texts written centuries before their fulfillment in actual history, and we showed the Gospels were reliable history, because we've been speaking about scripture as a reliable historical text, we should look at the amazing data of fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament in the New Testament. The multitude and precision of these prophecy fulfillments uh, speaks to a lord of history, a providential God, who inspired the prophets to make such prophecies and then govern history to bring them about. Also note that we don't need to make an argument for the historical truth of the events of these prophecies, the historical truth of the Old Testament, even though a large portion of the Old Testament is just history, it is historical. But we don't need to make that argument. All we need to do is point out the fact that it's accepted that these prophecies were written centuries, sometimes many centuries, before they were fulfilled in actual historical events in history that we see in the Gospels. St. Thomas Aquinas comments on this fact of God's providence in a really beautiful way. He says, quote, Man cannot invest created things or history with intrinsic meaning. At best, he can use attributes metaphorically, as all good poets do. God, however, can so invest persons, events, and things as the creator of everything and the provident Lord of history. Scripture can make known such signification because it has the same creator and Lord as its principal author." What does this mean? Basically what St. Thomas is saying is, men can make works of art such as plays or poems or stories, and they can use words to signify things, but God can use events to signify other events or historical persons to signify or symbolize or foretell or foreshadow other historical events. That's something that we can't do. God, as the author of history, can make a historical event meaningful and point toward a future historical event or make a person in history be a forerunner of a person who will come later in history. It's a really beautiful way to think about God as Lord of history. Sir Isaac Newton also has a beautiful quote on this. He says, quote, He gave this and the prophecies of the Old Testaments not to gratify men's curiosities by enabling them to foreknow things, but that after they were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by the event. And his own providence, not the interpreters, be then manifested thereby to the world. For the event of things predicted many ages before will then be a convincing argument that the world is governed by providence, end quote. So what Newton is saying there is that God inspired the prophets not just so that they could know stuff ahead of time, 
but that when the prophecies were fulfilled, it might serve as a sign of God as the providential Lord of history. Now, while we're on the topic of Newton, let's start with an example of the prophecies, and in particular, the one that Newton himself found to be the convincing argument that Christ is the Messiah, and the convincing argument that God is the Lord of history. And he calls this prophecy the foundation stone of the Christian faith. It has to do with a prophecy in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in chapter 8. Starting at verse 24, we have Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, talking to Daniel, saying, quote, and this is verses 24 through uh, 27. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand, from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, and for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one, a Christ, shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now it's widely accepted that this talk of weeks has to do actually with years. So seventy weeks means seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety. So four hundred and ninety years is the prediction made from the time that Jerusalem begins to be rebuilt, the temple begins to be rebuilt, until the time of the coming of the Anointed One or the Christ. So with that four hundred and ninety years in mind, here's what Newton says about Daniel's prophecy. Quote, when Ezra went up to Jerusalem, it was in the year of the Julian period 4257. Count the time from thence to the death of Christ, and you will find it just 490 years. If you count in Judaic years commencing in autumn, and date the reckoning from the first autumn after Ezra's coming to Jerusalem, when he put the king's decree in execution, the death of Christ will fall on the year of the Julian period 4747, that is, the year of the Lord, 34. So Ezra leading a group of Israelites, returns from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem by the decree of the king in order to rebuild the temple. This is the second building of the temple. So again, recall what Gabriel says to Daniel in the prophecy. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of the anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. So this amazed Newton, and it is an amazing prophecy, a very precise prophecy, and he saw it as incontrovertible proof of the truth of prophecy and therefore the existence of a lord of history. There's a Canadian astrophysicist named Hugh Ross who puts the probability of this prophecy fulfillment by chance as 1 in 10 to the 5th. Now, I don't know how he comes to that number, but it's worth reflecting on how improbable it is that such a precise prediction would come about in history so accurately. Another prophecy is in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah, the prophet, the Lord is speaking to him and tells him to take up the implements of a shepherd of a flock. And he instructs him on what to do. And he becomes a shepherd. And he says, quote, I took my staff and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I had with all the people. And it was broken on that day. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price. And if not, don't. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. 
And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So in the context of the whole of Zechariah's prophecy, only part of which we read here, it's clear that the Lord is instructing him to act on his behalf as a sign of God's displeasure with the people of Israel. And if we look at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, we read Judah saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So God, five centuries earlier, used Zechariah as a living symbol, living testimony to what would happen to the Messiah, the one who made covenant with the people of Israel. And when that covenant was broken, he would be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. And even the little detail of the potter's field matches up what was said in the prophecy of Zechariah. Psalm 22 is another well-known, detailed prophecy. It starts with the words that our Lord recited on the cross when he was being crucified, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he indicates that psalm because further down in the psalm, very detailed prophecy of the events of that moment. Just to read a couple of the verses, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They have numbered all my bones. They have looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. You don't really need me to connect the dots for you because this prophecy made centuries before is almost exactly replicated, or rather fulfilled, in the events surrounding Christ's crucifixion, even to the point of the Roman soldiers casting lots for his robe. If we want to look to astrophysicist Hugh Ross again and his probability here we have 1 in 10 to the 13th, so take that how you will. The prophecy of the place of Christ's birth was made by prophet Micah. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, And thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, art a little one among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, and his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. So Micah, who lived seven centuries before the coming of Christ, predicted the very small place of his birth. And you might recall in the Gospels surrounding the infancy narrative of Christ that King Herod's priests were aware of this prophecy and pointed out that if this king was to come, it would be in Bethlehem. And this, of course, led to the slaughter of the innocents. We might also point out the entire institution and symbolism of the Passover supper with the slaughter of the Passover lamb and the rituals of that foreshadowing the Last Supper where Christ clearly sees himself as fulfilling the prophecy or foreshadowing in the Passover Supper of old and what we as Catholics have in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. There's a lot to go into on this topic. It's a very rich topic, so I refer you to a much better and more thorough explanation of it in uh, several books. The Lamb's Supper, by Dr. Scott Hahn, and The Fourth Cup, also by Dr. Hahn, as well as The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Dr. Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E. The entire topic of prophecies fulfilled in Christ is immense. 
one could teach for years and years about these things and not exhaust the richness of scriptural prophecies fulfilled in Christ, scriptural symbolism fulfilled in Christ. We might make this the topic of the member full-length episode, so if that interests you, please go over to uh, my Patreon. You'll find the link in the description of this podcast. So to wrap up and summarize, it's really important to reflect on God as the Lord of history, to see all of the things God set in motion through various events and people so that we might be able to look back and understand that God has providential care of all of history. And even in the worst situations where God allows our freedom to produce much evil, he still has care of all of history and is bringing things to a greater good than we can imagine given our limited viewpoint both as finite creatures compared to God's infinite wisdom and as persons in one particular confined moment of history, unable to see where history is heading and what good God is bringing out of the events we see going on around us. We don't understand God's providence and we only will, God willing, when we see him face to face and understand his guiding hand uh, throughout our lives and throughout history. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. If these podcasts are helpful to you, please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please also check out my Patreon and subscribe to have access to extended episodes every week, as well as spiritual reading. Thank you and God bless.